some people have said, you know, actually, if you are sort of conspicuously uh, left leaning, um, you will not get into the foreign service. These people are ideologues. Whenever push comes to shove, <laughs> right? Um, whenever push comes to shove, you know, the Russians have to do what we say. <laughs> Howdy folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. Before we get started, I need to issue a warning. There are some audio problems with this episode. You're not hearing them yet. If you don't like what you're hearing now, you just don't like the sound of my voice, and I can respect that. But as you get further into the episode, you'll hear that the audio will kind of speed up at random, and then it'll go back to normal. There'll be a bit of crackling and popping. I tried to remove and fix everything I could, but you'll still hear some of it. This is just as good as I could get it in post-production. So apologies for that. My guest today is Keith Gessen, a novelist, journalist, literary translator, and assistant professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Gessen has written about Russia for The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, where he recently published a fascinating story titled The Quiet Americans Behind the U.S.-Russia Imbroglio where he examines the historical and philosophical landscape of today's Russia expertise in the United States. And he's my guest today. So what are you going to learn about on today's episode of the podcast? This interview is devoted to Keith's quiet American story in the New York Times magazine. I asked him how the piece came together, what possessed him to write it, and what he says to critics who accuse him of talking only to like-minded Russia hands. We also discuss the role that Russian domestic politics plays in U.S. thinking about Russia, and the legacy of the 1990s, when today's paradigm emerged and the West started expanding NATO. Keith also told me what he thinks about the potential influence of the U.S. news media and newcomer grifters on America's Russia experts. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. So thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. I know that sure. you know your your uh, piece in in the New York Times Magazine got like an enormous amount of feedback. Like in in terms of like Russia watching, it was one of the biggest splashes I've seen in a while. And so very excited to be able to talk to you about it. Um, and I know I've got a lot of questions, so if, I'll just get right into it, so I don't keep you any longer than than um, than I have to or than I can. <laughs> um, so first, the the one of the the first thing I saw about your story before I even read it, I saw you tweeted it out, and you said um, you described it as an expanded version of the, a long spiel that you said you've been making about U.S. policy on uh, on Russia since 1991. And so I'm wondering, you know, what's that about? And what possessed you to write this story now, and how exactly did it come together? I guess the the initial impulse was <clears throat> well, sort of two things. I mean, one was just the experience of being in in Russia a fair amount, and being a kind of journalist over there, and just having really almost no contact with uh, the American kind of arm of things, and and you know, it just that, it, and 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 that seemed totally normal to me. That seemed like what you're supposed to do over there. You go over there because you're it's, you're in Russia, you're in Ukraine, or wherever, and it's the people who live there who are interesting to you. And um, 
that's who you end up wanting to write about. And, and that's what is also interesting to your audience back home because, you know, they don't get to go there. Right. Um, and then at a, you know, at a certain point, this started seeming odd to me actually, because, um, there, here I am an American journalist, right? I don't actually vote in the Russian or Ukrainian elections. Um, don't actually have any say in, in the way they run their country. I do have a say or theoretically in the way, um, we run our country here. Um, and yet I have no kind of insight or, or visibility into really what my country is doing in these places. Um, and so that started seeming odd to me kind of structurally. And then the, the kind of more specific impetus came from watching the Ukraine, uh, crisis play out and just seeing how, um, this administration, the Obama administration, which I thought had sort of made it quite clear that they wanted to stay out of the area and, and not sort of make the same mistakes that the Bush administration had made in Georgia. Um, uh, you know, how, you know, finding itself sort of getting, um, involved, uh, and there was a kind of, there was a point person for this involvement who was Victoria Newland, um, who I didn't know very much about at all. Um, so, you know, so I was like, oh, is, is it possible that, um, and, and, and I don't quite remember how I, I came to this idea, whether it was somebody um, who knew more about the stuff than I did sort of suggested it to me or, or, or what. But, you know, is it possible that, you know, beneath that there are things that go on inside the U.S. government that are basically beneath the attention of the president? Right. So if the president isn't paying attention to Ukraine um, and clearly he was not. And, and why would he, <laughs> right? He has a lot of other things to worry about. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you can have a kind of, um, a situation where a, an official who, um, you know, w- once you start talking to people in the government, they say, well, assistant secretary of state, that's actually, you know, a very high position. Right. Um, but to the, to a kind of lay person and, and to the person, you know, I'd never heard of Victoria Newland. I couldn't name the assistant secretary of state for anything. Right. Um, I can, na- I could not have named the deputy secretary of state. Right. I, I, you know, one knows who the secretary of state is, but the beneath that it gets a little fuzzy. So, um, so, you know, so I was like, Oh, uh, you know, is this person actually running our policy over there? Cause it certainly looks like it. And, you know, and if so, um, you know, is that the case? Has that been the case throughout the entire kind of post-Cold War era? Um, who are these people? Um, you know, what do they think about? Um, you know, why are they the way they are? Um, and, you know, and, and insofar as I, as I had had contact with, um, and I don't know if this has been your experience, but, you know, insofar as I had had contact with Americans in Russia, um, you know, outside of the kind of narrow circle of academics, right, and and journalists, um, the sort of, you know, business people and government people, um, you know, struck me as not super knowledgeable, um, extremely arrogant, right? Um, So some combination of really arrogant, um, really sort of kind of disgusted by... uh, 
by Russia and Russians, right? Um, and, but you know, and, and, and not super, uh, you know, interested or, or uh, knowledgeable about it. Um, and you know, and then so, so I sort of you know, are, and I, I wanted to know, you know, were these the people who were running our policy, right? And and the answer turned out to be, well, actually, once you sort of start looking at it, it's true that a lot of kind of foreign service people who uh, rotate through are going to be not very knowledgeable. But there are these people who are in this U.S. government who actually know quite a bit about Russia and are very interested in Russia, um, but also have pretty strong opinions about Russia, which are kind of interesting to talk to them about and, and see how they play out over time. So uh, kind of long answer to your question, but that's that's what I began with. Do you, do you feel like having you know finished the piece now and having it be published, do you feel like what you found was what you expected and you're satisfied. I mean, I, you I hope you're happy with the piece cause it's, I, I really like it. And so I'm assuming that, or did you find, are you happy with what you found because it's, it sort of clarified what you already thought and believed or did, were you surprised by some things that you learned when researching it? At some level, I, um, you know, at, at some level it, it did confirm this kind of suspicion, which was that, um, although, uh, Newland herself sort of challenged this when I asked her about it, but you know, um, basically she she was out there, you know, pretty much making decisions on her own about how to um, how to do this thing, you know, when she was in Kiev. Um, what I was surprised by was the um, so so that was confirmed, right? Um, what surprised me was the level of ideological commitment um, that people like uh, Tori Newland, people like Dan Freed. Um, I don't know if that's a person anyone's ever heard of, <laughs> um, but he, he was also, he was assistant secretary of state before Newland and uh, was in the, you know, various positions <clears throat> uh, connected to Russia and Eastern Europe in the U S government for decades. Um, these people are ideologues, right? They um, they have incredibly strong beliefs, um, and you know, I, I guess maybe it was naive of me to be surprised by that. Um, and yet, there is this kind of myth of the Foreign Service, which I think is um, which is something that they, you know, stress all the time. They say we are professionals, right? We bring expertise. Um, we work for democratic and Republican administrations, right? Um, those things are true. They do have expertise and they do work across administrations. Um, but it turns out to be the case that they don't, you know, like turn off their ideas, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, with, with the new administration. And it's, it's like the case that certainly within the U.S. government, right, um, their opinions and ideas are not a secret. Right. They have arguments all the time. So it's not like they are, uh, you know, ha hatching a conspiracy. Right. Uh, that is invisible to other people in government. They express their ideas. They argue. Uh, they are vocal um, and, and people can argue back. Um, still, the kind of level of the, the sort of the depth of that. Um, my impression of how effective they were able to be 
um, across time, across different administrations was surprising. Um, and the conclusion I came to is that basically if you're a person who believes that the U.S. government is this kind of force of light and good um, and that, you know, the U.S. should get involved and the U.S. should be out there promoting democracy, um, that's kind of a winning argument <laughs> um, in the US, inside the U.S. government, right? I mean, it's, and you can see why it would be, right? And, um, you know, the counter argument uh, let's not get involved. We're just going to make things worse. We're going to fuck it all up, <laughs> right? Which happens to be the kind of historically informed and correct argument. Um, but you can see how that just wouldn't play as well as uh, we're all so wonderful and uh, fix this, right? So, um, so, so, you know, I was surprised that, you know, because there is this sort of myth that these people are just, um, you know, just carrying out their kind of professional duties, um, they, they are, and yet, you know, within kind of bounds of uh, what is allowed, and, and often quite a bit of latitude is given to them, um, because, you know, a lot of these issues don't rise to a level uh, where they get discussed, right? Um, they do get to determine a lot of what the U.S. government does. So that was, that was the surprise to me. When you were writing this story, obviously, you, you I assume you collected more material than you could ever possibly fit into the finished product or the published product. And, you know, you had to leave out certain experts or, you know, not interview them at all. And I wanted to get to a few of the responses that I've been reading online. And one of the more, one of the angrier ones came from Stephen Blank, a, you know, particularly hawkish DC think tanker um, who does not make an appearance in your story. And he called your piece a polemic, not an analysis. And he claims that, you know, he says he only solicited views from like-minded people um, and I'm curious, you know, what do you say to that? And are there any interactions with Russia experts, people that you interviewed for your story that, you know, didn't make it into the published text, whom you would have added, you know, if you had a few more hundred words? Oh, um, I mean, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I think that's a, I think that's ridiculous, <laughs> right? I mean, I, you know, I mean, look, I, I'm, partly I'm kind of, um, you know, one of the premises is that actually this kind of the hawkish, um, version of what's going on in Russia is actually here every single day, right? So the idea that these people are not, you know, that their voices are not being heard is really kind of laughable. Um, and, you know, and I did want to present the other side, right? Um, at the same time, I did, you know, kind of the, the conceit of the piece is that, I, you know, it goes through the kind of main Russia people, right, since 91, right? So these are, in fact, you know, Sotabit, right, who was the Russia person for Clinton, Tom Graham, who was the Russia person for most of the Bush administration, um, McFaul, right, who was the Russia person um, uh, under Obama, and then, um, you know, and then the kind of uh, David and Victoria Newland, who are at the State Department throughout this time, um, you know, and have their hands in Russia policy. I mean, there's certainly, I would have loved to, loved to talk to Bill Burns, Celeste Wallander, John Byerly, um, uh, you know, so, yeah, uh, you know, um, William Hill, there's a lot of people that I, um, would also love to talk to, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean the you know and, and most of the kind of people who actually were running Russia policy um, are on the hawkish end of the spectrum, right? So so I don't feel like their voices did not get uh, heard, but but more to the point, I feel like their, their voices are heard every single day, um, twenty four hours a day in Russia, and yeah, it is important to get some um, some other voices in there. That was the that was the idea. I also wanted to ask a bit about. Russian domestic politics and whether they, how much they matter here or whether they matter. Um, BuzzFeed's Miriam Elder, I, I, I tweeted earlier today, I said I'm going to be interviewing you. Anybody have any questions? Any Russia hands have questions for Keith Gesson? And Miriam Elder, who obviously 
works at BuzzFeed now, reported out of Moscow for a long time. She uh, she's, she wrote that your story glosses over Russia's domestic politics as though the Russia of 1996 were the same as the Russia of 2003 or 2018. And she wanted to know if you did that to focus on, to keep the focus on U.S. players and dynamics, or if you think that Russia's domestic politics aren't really key to understanding, you know, what shapes or divides America's Russia hands. And I thought that that her questions, they sort of touch on some of the wider criticisms I've seen of your story, which is that people out there are wondering, or they're even arguing that, that you're saying America's experts need to change their perceptions without really a thought for Russian policies or actions. So like, what do you think the role here is for Russian domestic politics? And, you know, why did you make, why did you decide to write something that didn't really get into that very much? Yeah. I mean, what the piece is about, it's about our, you know, it's about the U S policymakers. Right. Um, so it gets, I mean, it very consciously kind of brackets, uh, you know, Russia itself. <laughs> um, you know, and, but, but and again, you know, uh, kind of, coming back to what I said at the beginning, right? I mean, this is, I think there's probably too much emphasis um, paid, you know, uh, too much attention paid to Russian domestic politics um, in our conversations about Russia, right? I mean, we're so good at um, remembering all the things that Putin has done. We are so bad <laughs> at remembering all the things that we have done. Um, it really, really ought to be the reverse. Um, we should have a list of all the bad things we have done kind of at our fingertips and say, yes, we did this bad thing. We did this other bad thing. We did this third bad thing. Um, but <laughs> in this case, you should really listen to us, you know, because um, the Russians certainly, certainly remember all the bad things we did. Right. And, you know, and, and, you know, uh, for their part, they should remember the bad things they did. I mean, it's, it, you know, and, and just because the Russians are always saying, well, what, you know, you pulled out of the ABM treaty, you know, um, you invaded Iraq, right. Um, just because they practice that kind of rhetoric and uh, whenever, you know, they are criticized, um, that doesn't mean that we should, right? Um, you know, we were always confused, can, can, uh, uh, we're always accusing the Russians of whataboutism, right? Um, but that's, that is definitely what we, what we practice too. Um, so yeah, so that, yeah, that was, that was quite conscious, um, you know, and, and I think the Russian domestic politics are very interesting. If you read, you know, one of the kind of, um, really interesting uh, things that I did for this piece was read Strobe Talbot's memoir very carefully. And, you know, that's a story of certainly on the, you know, certainly on the part of Strobe, uh, very good intentions, right? Um, Clinton, good intentions. Um, and yet, um, and yet, whenever push comes to shove, right? Um, whenever push comes to shove, you know the Russians have to do what we say, basically. Um, and that was very interesting. There's there's a kind of dynamic in um, in the book where uh, the Republicans um, in Congress are, uh, you know, continuously very skeptical of the kind of Russia friendly line. Um, of the Clinton administration, right, and um, you know, are, are, are constantly putting pressure um, on Clinton administration and Strobe Talbot to be tougher on Russia. Um, and this sort of there's a parallel process in Russia with the kind of hardliners, right? 
And there are all these meetings between <clears throat> Stroke Talbot and his counterpart in Russia um, where they talk about their kind of hard, you know, both of them are under pressure from the hardliners. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a kind of fascinating moment where um, there's this discussion of NATO expansion and uh, Strobe comes up with, uh, this is very few people remember this, but, you know, Strobe, um, after base, after basically it was decided that NATO would, would expand eastward, Strobe came up with Partnership for Peace, which was this kind of halfway house, um, that would basically would delay NATO expansion for a few years, right? And give it a, give it a kind of, uh, a slightly different name, right? The NATO expansion. Um, and it would involve the Russians, and he comes to deliver this message to, um, I now forget who, but someone in the Russian foreign ministry. And, um, you know, being stroke Talbot, he, he wants to be totally honest about it. He's like, look, we've called it partnership for peace, but you should understand. And, you know, before he even gets the kind of uh, sentence out of his mouth, his Russian counterpart says, no, 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 that's great. <laughs> I don't need to hear the rest of this. You know, as long as it gets us past the next elections, right? As long as it gets us past the 96 election, you can do what you want, basically, right? Um, so, you know, certainly Russian domestic politics uh, especially when they had competitive elections, right? Um, you know, played played a, a large role in the relationship, and and obviously, um, you know, Putin's behavior uh, is a is a huge factor, right? Um, I guess I, I guess I was trying to present a kind of corrective to that, right? Um, and and I do, you know, and I, but but also not not just um, so that we end up somewhere in between, right? Um, I really do think that as Americans. Um, we should, you know, look at ourselves first, right? That should be where we look first, second, and third. Um, and that tends not to be what we do. So you mentioned the NATO expansion thing, and that's that's like one of those issues where if you're sort of a Russia expert, you know, whatever side you come down on, that will determine whether you're mainstream or you know mark you as an outsider or something. And I've heard it; it just comes up in any debate, really, because it's that's sort of the you know the the linchpin of um, of so much of American foreign policy thinking today, and your your article I thought has this sort of fascinating moment where you talk about the State Department and the Pentagon in the kind of early mid '90s being opposed to expansion, and then we kind of, then there's this moment where it goes from that idea, the idea of expanding NATO goes from something you you know crumple up on a on a in a report and throw in the garbage to being the end all be all of what we're doing in Europe, and I mean, you, you mentioned that, that basically there's, in, in your telling, there's a report by Rand that goes around saying that Poland and Germany would rearm and get nukes and that that's the, the mental, that's the kind of reasoning behind the U.S. getting behind expansion. And I thought that was really interesting because when you hear people talk about it today, the, for instance, Michael McFall just uh, debated Stephen Cohen uh, in New York last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago now. And he, this comes up, obviously, Cohen brought it up and then McFall responded. And McFall gave a response I've heard lots of U.S. officials give, which is that the Russians didn't even care about this at the time. In negotiations, they never brought it up. McFall was present at these negotiations, so it's not just hearsay. So I, unless he's just lying through his teeth, which I assume he's not, they didn't bring it up. I was on every single phone call with the president when I worked at the White House, every single meeting he had with both Medvedev and Putin. And I attended most of the meetings 
that they had uh, when I was ambassador. NATO expansion never came up once, not one single time. And you know why? Because it wasn't an issue during this period. That's the kind of defense is that they're only making it an issue now because they have other ulterior motives to do that. Or because they're, you know, they're now author- more authoritarian. So again, it's the domestic stuff it has nothing to do with us. Um, did you like? You obviously came across a lot of that rhetoric. How how would you describe or how would you explain the way NATO expansion exists as a kind of I don't know like uh, um, litmus test for Russian experts today? Yeah, I mean it's uh, um, I mean it, it's kind of a well, uh, uh, just to go just to go back to your question a little bit. I mean, um, my my discussion of it is very compressed, right? <laughs> um, so uh, yes, there was a there was a uh, Rand report. There was also um, Clinton's, uh, and this is all in in Strobe's memoir. Um, th- there was uh, Clinton's conversations with um, Václav Havel and. Lech Walesa, right? Who who were who were these heroic dissidents? Um, and this is something Dan Fried stresses. He's like, well, these, you know, we overthrew communism, and this is what we get, right? Um, and you know, you're not you're not disbanding NATO, right? So you think NATO is not bad? You think it's worthwhile? Then why don't we get to be in it? Um, you know, so you had these very kind of um, charismatic and heroic figures um, who also, by the way, had um, pretty active and committed diasporas um, in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio, which are swing states, right? Um, So that, you know, so our domestic politics played a role in NATO expansion. Um, The... uh, you know, again, um, the idea that the, uh, the, I've heard this, I've heard, I've heard this um, probably from Paul, the Russians were opposed to NATO expansion. It is in Strode's book, right? Um, there's there's a whole chapter. Um, the Russians were very opposed to you know, the Russian foreign ministry, right? Strode's interlocutors told him quite clearly, Russia is a four-letter word. So this, um, you know, then it's also the case that Yeltsin, right, then went out and told the Poles, um, we're sorry about all the stuff we did, and, and you should... Um, you know, if you want to join an international alliance, that's your business, right? That's true. Um, but the idea that there was no resistance from Russia, that's just false. It's not, you know, and I didn't discover this. It is in the most kind of authoritative, detailed, famous text <laughs> uh, produced by any government insider named Strobe Talbot. So for McFaul to go around saying this, I find rather odd. Um, so, yeah, but it's, you know, it's true that some of these things, you know, they kind of, they don't get, I mean, it's also the case, you know, the National Security Archive just published all these documents, which I haven't um, gone through, but, you know, where um, uh, uh, James Baker promised um, that uh, Germany, uh, you know, would not, uh, you know, unify, I can't quite remember, you know, it wouldn't, we wouldn't go any further east than Germany, right? Um, those promises were definitely made. Um, so, uh, you know, so for the Russian government to feel, you know, uh, no, they were not in writing, but for the Russian government to feel in a kind of broad way that they were lied to is not, is not crazy, right? And to call them crazy for, for saying that I think is, is a little disingenuous. Um, oh, but sorry, but, but the, the, for me, the interesting thing was that, you know, um, it was a kind of, uh, 
you know, I mean, one of the kind of animating questions that I had was, you know, to what extent do people's ideas about stuff, right, actually change um, the way the U.S. government behaves, right? And um, it's kind of, you know, when you talk to, um, you know, a lot of these uh, former government officials are now, they now work at think tanks, right? And the kind of... um, a sort of trope that I encountered was was all of them saying, well, you know, when I was in government, that was the real shit. Um, th- you know, whereas think tank, this is, you know, this is just, this is paper, you know, we're just producing, we're just producing paper. Um, and that's kind of the fashionable line if you're actually in a think tank, right? Um, so the, the kind of rand paper on NATO expansion is interesting because actually it is, you know, you can quite clearly see that this, um, really affected the debate, right? Um, now, the kind of counter argument to that is, well, there had to be, you know, constituencies, right, that were going to, you know, take this up. Um, and, you know, um, you could quite plausibly argue that eventually someone was going to write, you know, a convincing paper on NATO expansion that all of these people were going to say, yes, finally, here is, you know, our argument. Um, so that's true. But, but, you know, it is interesting that, yes, there was this paper and, you know, um, I actually, Ben Freed told me, um, he's like, I, when I saw this, I said, this is great. This is exactly what we've been thinking about. Um, you know, our, our kind of wing of the National Security Council that thinks NATO should expand, but you've done it in such detail, um, you know, that we didn't, we don't have time to do here in government because we're so busy. So thank you so much, right? Um, so that I thought that was an interesting kind of episode. So if we if we take the example of of a think tank paper or think tanks in general having sort of unexpected or uncertain influence over decision makers in the government. When you were doing your research, did you find anything similar with the American news media? Like were there, did you get a sense that like particular newspapers or I don't know, websites or columnists were sort of driving different experts in different directions and toward a harder or softer line? Because it's funny, right? Because if, if, the, if the mainstream is so convinced that it's Russian domestic politics that is the sort of driver of... of um, the fact that our relations have gotten worse, that would you then think you then look for kind of a heightened interest in reporting on Russia or, or intelligence in general. They probably they should be wanting to know more about Russian domestic politics, and so that would presumably lead them to more information sources and look, reading the, the news media more. Or did you did you not necessarily find that? So the question is, do, do 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 government officials read the newspaper? Well, I mean, like when you were interviewing them, did you get a sense that? Like oh the the, the these news these uh, newspapers and journalists have real influence power here in the sense that think tanks occasionally do as well. Oh yeah, I mean I mean they definitely do. I mean the, I think the media, um, I mean as a general kind of comment, I would say I think I think journalists uh, consistently underestimate uh, how much they write um, fact policy. Right? I think journalists are like oh we just report you know truth, <laughs> um, we just call them we see them. Um, in fact, I mean I I think. I think journalists should, in fact, be much more kind of aware of what kind of policy outcomes uh, they're reporting um, might lead to, right? Um, I, I didn't, it wasn't kind of a question that I was seeking to answer. Um, I don't have any, any good examples for you. I mean, it's, it's you know, the way, um, it, it, it seems to me like the way that this functions is that, um, 
the media sort of brings attention to something um, and then, you know, either the White House has to answer it in the form, you know, at a kind of press conference situation or it gets picked up by Congress, right, and then gets used to sort of, um, you know, beat the beat the White House over the head. So, I mean, you have, you know, um, the remarkable, I mean, and, and it's kind of the, to me, not, you know, not sufficiently remarked upon um, congressional bill, uh, kind of basically making the sanctions permanent last summer. Uh, I mean, that's, that's amazing, right? I mean, there were two votes against it in the Senate, uh, 98 to two in the Senate, right? Um, And those two votes were uh, Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul. Right. Um, and Bernie's reasons were to me sort of disappointing. It was he had some kind of technical thing about it. Um, but, you know, you don't get you don't get that kind of unanimity in Congress uh, without a major sort of media campaign, basically saying, um, you know, Russia is evil and we can't trust the president um, to to do the right thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't I mean, I had I had a very interesting conversation. Um, uh, this this got left out uh, because it became kind of irrelevant. But the um, senior official um, that I spoke to at the at the White House um, uh, said, oh, you know, it's impossible to work this like this. Um all the media talks about is how everybody's going to get fired, right? Um, why does the media keep talking about everybody's going to get fired? And then, of course, um, you know, I think it was 10 days later, uh, McMaster got fired, right? And, um, you know, and then Tiller, or 10 days later, Tillerson got fired. And then a week later, McMaster got fired. So um, we have to cut that out of the article because um, it was no longer a, a very good point by the uh, senior administration official. But, um, yeah, so, I, yeah, the me- I mean, I think, you know, and I think the media has, has, and, you know, and this is kind of something that was way outside the scope of my article, but I think all of us who have written about Russia, um, you know, have a lot to answer for, right? I mean, this is, we have uh, basically kind of told the bad news from Russia, you know, for the last 25 years. And, um, you know, most of it was true, right? Um, but you sort of you sort of take these things in aggregate, right? <laughs> and, you know, the story we kept telling over and over again is, um, you know, Russia's horrible, uh, Putin is a, you know, KGB villain, um, on, you know, Russia has been seized by gangsters. Um, you know, again, you, you take these stories individually, they're not bad. Um, you take them in the aggregate, they begin to look pretty bad. Um, and some of them, I think, have become sort of self-fulfilling prophecies. So, Do you have a, a medication to prescribe here? Is it like more stories about local heroism and civic, <laughs> what have you? Or I mean, I just, well, I, you know... Um, my story was like pretty, pretty mild, but like, boy, I, I wish there was much more reporting by American journalists about what America did, um, you know, in, um, 
in Russia, right? I mean, the sort of un, the uncritical and ignorant embrace of Bill Browder as a um, as a figure of you know um, human rights and and uh, you know moral uh, courage. Um, you know, and and what happened to Sergei Magnitsky is horrible, right? And and I don't have a problem with someone, um, you know, wanting to memorialize him. Um, but you know, Bill Browder was a kind of capitalist who went over uh, to Russia, made a lot of money at the expense <laughs> of Russian working people. Um, so you know, um, I have other people that I would look to, you know, to to tell me about democracy and human rights. Um, so, you know, so what's the, yeah, I don't know. What's the medication. I don't know what, you know, again, what have we done over there? Right. Do you think that, uh, that the internationalists or, um, you called it the vast internationalist middle, the mainstream, essentially, do you think that they're aware that they're living in an echo chamber? Um, you know, like, are they, um, do they do they sense that the paradigm is, is sort of suffocating or without debate as you've portrayed it? Or do you think that they are sort of at each other's throats over the minutia of policy within the existing paradigm? Um, I think, yeah, I think the latter. <laughs> right? um, no, I mean, I, yeah, I think I think um, I, I don't think. You know, uh, for example, a Dan Freed. Um, thinks of himself as allied with a Strobe Talbot, right? I think he very much thinks um, that they were on opposite sides of a lot of arguments, right? Um, but yeah, when you look at it sort of from a, a, a remove, they they, tend, they um, are actually a bit closer, you know, quite a bit closer together than, than they might think. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the kind of one... Um, you know, there's there's also this kind of weird problem where um, you're not supposed to talk about your party affiliation um, in in Washington, and or you know, if you're one of these kind of professional um, foreign service people, and it, you know, it, to me it was very confusing. <laughs> ultimately, you know, and and I think it, um, you know, it makes their it makes their discourse. Um, much harder to kind of parse for a for a sort of layperson, but yeah, but but yes, you're. I think you're 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 right. I mean, it is. I think they experience a lot of disagreement over things. Um, uh, yeah, within, but very much within the paradigm. Okay. Why do you think it is that that realism is not as popular among the the Russia hands? I mean. Do you think is it is it weeded out of them at some stage of their development? You know, in, uni- in the university or on the job or in the military, or is there something you know about Americans that they're just they don't see the world this way? I'm, yeah, I mean, I think I think there is something about Americans, right? Um, and and you know, Americans have always kind of thought of themselves as this exceptional nation, um, and uh, I. You know that's and and uh, a lot of the bad things that America has done have been under the sort of flag of um, bringing you know light into the darkness. Um, there was you know so I think uh, Michael Kimmage 
is the one who already is, you know, uh, mass in the article. He says, you know, um, people tend to go into the foreign service, you know, uh, who believe perhaps by definition, right, in the virtues of American power. Um, and it, yeah, it did. It, I did come to think that there was this sort of sociological element, right? Um, and I think I, I think I, yeah. I mean, you know, I kept thinking, you know, where are the Chomsky acolytes? <laughs> and at a certain point, I realized, you know, that if you were a Chomsky acolyte, uh, you would not go work for the U.S. government, um, which is a problem, right? I mean, I, I, I came to think that was a mistake. Um, and since, you know, I sort of was tweeting about this and since then some people have said, you know, actually, if you are sort of conspicuously, uh, left leaning, um, you will not get into the foreign service. And I, I haven't had a chance to kind of, um, look into that. That would be very interesting if that were the case. I mean, it wouldn't be, um, on the face of it, it wouldn't be, you know, um, if I was going to go work for Goldman Sachs <laughs> and I, you know, and I was like, but I think, you know, um, interest rates and, you know, you know, arbitrage is evil or whatever. Right. Um, they probably would say, well, that's your, this might not be the best, you know, uh, position for you. Um, and, you know, and likewise, maybe the U S government has a similar view of things, which on, 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 on the one hand is not unreasonable. On the other hand, you know, given that this is a, kind of uh, a free country, right? And um, we are supposed to have, um, you know, a government that represents us. Um, in that sense, it's a problem if, if you as a left winger um, can't get into the foreign service, right? So, uh, but yeah, but my, yeah, my impression was that definitely the, the foreign service is, is dominated by a kind of um, idealistic, um, very nice, <laughs> um, you know, kind of, lovely person um who yeah thinks that the u.s can do a lot of good in the world and um you know and 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 often this just means you know opening a library somewhere um which i certainly don't have a problem with but um at other times it might mean um uh you know all the things that kind of fall under the umbrella of democracy promotion um and sometimes these things shade over into basically telling other people how to run their countries and, and um, maybe doing that in a way that is, um, you know, uh, not effective. I, you know, as, as, uh, uh, as Olga Olaker, uh, kind of one of my heroes uh, from the article, she said, you know, um, I, she said, I would love to be in favor of democracy promotion if someone would, show me a place where it works. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I do think there's a kind of sociological element, uh, which is powerful and, and, um, you know, and we've had these kind of discussions on the left about, um, engaging in electoral politics. Right. Um, and the, the conclusion has, I think been, yes, that the left should engage in electoral politics. And, uh, you know, I came to the conclusion that the left should, if possible, um, engage in the kind of government bureaucracy as well. Okay, and I had one last question about grifters as opposed to experts. The whole article is all about these bona fide Russia experts um, and dividing them into various philosophical schools and so on. But, you know, recently, especially since the um, meddling allegations, 
there's been this glut of people who are who have surfaced who want to have who want to be a part of the Russia debate, and they're self styled self styled cybersecurity cyber war people, and they, it seems to me they've become a big part of the Russia debate. And I wonder if when you were speaking to these Russia hands, these Russia experts, did did that come up at all? Because I know that you, you mentioned how one of the the pressures they faced after the fall of the Soviet Union was that Russia was no longer the leading kind of bureaucratic entity in the government. And so now it was, you know, people with the OPEC people got to decide energy stuff, not the Russia people. And the nonproliferation people got to decide the missile stuff, not the Russia people. Now the cyber war people maybe are getting a piece of that over the Russia people still. Is that, did you find any friction there? Oh, um, oh, you know, I didn't, that wasn't something that came up. Um, but yeah, I could, I could certainly see that. <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think we, we, one of the things that I gleaned from my conversation with the current administration official, right, was that actually this bureaucratic problem, um, you know, um, may have been fixed, right? I mean, in the sense that um, Russia, I don't think anyone, you know, for better or worse, right, um, now Russia is very much on the agenda, right? Um, so, you know, and, and do you think the regional experts are getting their their day in the sun now or are they because there's this I mean, my impression is, is that the cyber war people, certainly when it comes to the meddling stuff, they're they're duking it out, you know, on even f- ground with the, the regional experts because the and, it, and I'm not necessarily suggesting that they've got nothing to say in this debate because they know about cyber war, presumably. And so. Maybe that's 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 good for the Russia debate because you're getting new information. But it, it does seem to me like, in terms of sort of interdisciplinary uh, rivalry, that's something that's maybe a little new in the last couple of years. And I'm just curious if that came up at all. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, my piece, I guess, is is, is a bit more his, more historical where we don't get into that. But that's a, that's an interesting question. I don't know. Um, yeah, certainly the the the, the self styled Russian experts have been. Um, a wonder to behold, um, and, you know. But you know, I guess I would say what, what some, you know. One of the things that you see is that um, their opinion, you know, their opinions may not be um, buttressed or you know burdened, <laughs> uh, burdened with a whole lot of you know knowledge, um, and yet they are not so far off. Um, from opinions of, of actually some very knowledgeable people, right? Um, but certainly, you know, I guess I would I would put those people in the kind of media camp, right? Um, who are creating a kind of media environment, um, which which you know, which is very much part of this whole thing. Um, I don't know if anybody in the government is going to be calling them up, but. But I wouldn't, <laughs> but maybe they will. I mean, you know, and, and we've certainly seen, I mean, this is the other, um, kind of avoided these people, but um, it's also certainly the case uh, that you do end up having people in the government working on Russia policy who also don't know anything about Russia, right? Um, we had... Uh, what was her? What was Evelyn Farkas's exact title <laughs> um, in the Department of Defense? But you know, this was not a person who had a, a background in Russia. Right? Um, so yeah, the grifters. We'll see what becomes. You know, 
I mean, it is, you know, one of the, one of the really most kind of dispiriting interviews I did was, uh, with someone who was charged with heading up, um, you know, the very kind of late breaking and fledgling kind of Bernie foreign policy team on Russia. Right. Um, and it was not a deep bench, <laughs> right? Um, the kind of, and, and, you know, this person struck me as someone who was kind of a veteran of sort of leftist debates on Russia and um, somewhat traumatized by those debates. Um, and, you know, really quite worried about um, having Bernie seem soft on Russia. Right. So, I mean, this did, this is, this was, you know, I think they, um, put this team together, you know, a few weeks before the convention. So it wasn't, um, you know, a long lived and influential group, but, um, you know, the, the kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I thought, well, actually, you know, by the end of kind of reporting the article, I could have named, you know, four or five people, I named them the article, who would be a great foreign policy Russia team for Bernie, you know, or whoever, uh, next time they run, right? That's my interview with Keith Gessen, the author of a must-read story published recently in the New York Times Magazine about the quiet Americans behind today's strained U.S.-Russian relations. I'll include a hyperlink to the article in the description of this episode. You can follow Keith on Twitter at Keith Gessen. See this episode's description for a hyperlink. And you can also pre-order his new book, A Terrible Country, his first novel in 10 years. I'll add an Amazon link to this episode's description as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a pledge to this podcast at patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can contribute as little or as much as you'd like. I'd like to thank all the listeners already pitching in. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Говорят мы пеки буки, как выносит на земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки, погадать на короля. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля, 